Each week we have two scripture readings at our church. And this week our first scripture reading is from James chapter 5. We'll have Craig come and read for us. Craig, if you would. James chapter 5, uh, 7 to 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you would know that we've been in an Advent series where we started with the Annunciation of Christ, where Christ's birth was told to Mary. Then we heard of her response in the Magnificat. And last week, Ben had preached on Christ's birth. This week, we find ourselves the first time where Jesus is in the temple, his presentation in the temple. Before I preach on this, we'll have Leah come and read the passage for us. Leah, if you would. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 38. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed the Lord and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through, his, through, through your own soul also, so that, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her, se- with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and, when a, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer, night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. 
please bow your heads with me one more, once more, once more, before we walk through God's word. Heavenly Father, we come before you, asking that you would lead us through the scriptures, that you, Holy Spirit, would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe the truths of Jesus Christ that are within this passage. Help me now, as I preach your word, to be clear, and that you would help us to see you more clearly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you woke up this morning, maybe groggy, or maybe that was just me, and you grabbed your phone, you would have seen that it was December 31st, as mentioned earlier in this service. And your heart may have skipped a beat, and your mind would have started to race, and you would have realized that we are at the end of yet another calendar year. Your mind quickly goes from reflecting on the year that just passed, and it starts thinking of the year ahead. And as you do that, these things called New Year's resolutions start to fill your heart and your mind. And you start to think about, how can I do better next year? If you're more of a planner, maybe you've already had this heart-racing, painstaking process take place earlier this week. And you've owned up to how the ways in which you want to live differently. You may have thought, I want to read more books. I want to reach out to more friends. I want to start going to the gym. All of these good things. Though they are good, they are resolutions that we could really do at any time of the year. But in this narrative, though it has nothing to do with New Year's, we do see the actions of the char these characters implicitly have a resolve. They are a people of resolution. And maybe they don't use the term as living a new life or turning a new leaf. They are resolved, and that resolve is like a steam engine that drives them to live their lives. In this passage, we will three, see three resolutions. A resolve to obey God in the midst of poverty. The resolve to trust God's promises until death. And the resolve to pursue purity after... The resolve to pursue piety after loss. And so, our, again, our structure is this. The resolve to obey in the midst of poverty the resolve to trust God's promises till death, and the resolve to pursue piety after loss. These resolutions, in one sense, did change their lives, but in a greater sense, it sustained their lives. And so our first point is this, the resolve to obey God in the midst of poverty. This passage begins with a young couple, Mary and Joseph, entering the temple seeking to obey the law of Moses. Unlike how this, this chapter opened, as they were obedient to an earthly ruler, now as the chapter closes, their obedience is in accordance to their divine ruler, God. It is likely that Mary and Joseph, after the birth of Jesus, stayed in Bethlehem till this time. And so the passage tells us that they came up to Jerusalem. The time that is told to us in verse 22 is the time of purification. 
You may be wondering, what time is this? We don't have such an hour on our clock. We don't have such a season. We don't have such a tradition. So what is the time of purification? If you notice, if you have a paper Bible with you, you would see a little footnote, and it would lead you to Leviticus 12, verse 8, which tells us of a purity law that told women to cleanse themselves after giving birth, to be ceremonially clean. If they had a male child, they were to come to the temple after 40 days. If they had a female child, it was double this time, and it would be 80 days. And so we see here that Jesus is 40 days old. The young parents, Mary and Joseph, are likely in their teenage years. And in the midst of that, they still sought to obey God's commands for themselves and for their child. Not only were they seeking to obey the purification law, but the scriptures also tell us of a second law. They also were seeking to obey Exodus 13, which states that the firstborn child should be redeemed and consecrated unto the Lord. The purification of Mary and the presentation of Jesus are commands from the Torah. And despite their poverty, they sought to obey these commands. You may be wondering, Jim, how do we know that they were poor? The fact that the passage tells us that their offering, their sacrifice, was two doves or two pigeons is the indicator within the passage. In Leviticus 12, it tells us that the purification law should be done with the lamb and that turtle doves should be a sin offering. But if they could not afford this, it is told that they should offer two turtle doves or two pigeons. Luke records us only the latter, which gives us clarity that Jesus was poor. He was born into poverty. But that poverty did not hinder the obedience of Mary and Joseph, that Christ would be obedient to all the law. Many commentators seek to make the point that the sacrifices mentioned related specifically to Mary's purification and not to Jesus' presentation. They make the point to state that Jesus was already holy as he was the Son of God, incarnate deity, and that he did not need another life to consecrate himself. And so it is possible that his presentation was simply customary and seeking to still be obedient to the law. Would we see this today, that Jesus was obedient to the laws that he needed to commit in his lifetime, but also the laws that he was subject to, such as being circumcised on the eighth day in verse 21, or in this passage, being presented in the temple as the firstborn son? As I studied that this week, it was beautiful to me to see that Christ is perfectly obedient to the law, even to the ones that he needs others to act upon him. How glorious is this? As you wrestle through the obedience of Mary and Joseph, you may be wondering, what is the application for us? And the question is, where are we with our obedience today? Are there reasons that you and I are citing for reasons why we can't obey? 
why we can't do many things that God calls us to. There might be a multitude of reasons that you say that you couldn't or maybe even you shouldn't obey God. Some of you might say, I'm too young. Some of you might say, I'm too old. This passage gives us both characters. Mary and Joseph were likely teenagers, but that was not a barrier to their obedience. Simeon and Anna were likely on death's doorsteps. Maybe the cost to your obedience is not financial. Instead, maybe it's relational. For some of you, being obedient to God will put certain relationships in jeopardy, maybe at work, maybe with family. It is a painstaking toll to be the Lord. But Mary and Joseph here are models for us to resolve to obey God despite our age, despite social status, despite economic status. Would we be a people that seek to obey God despite the cost, despite the loss, despite whatever it looks like to you? Fill in the blank. Would we be a people that are resolved to obey God? To have a changed and sustained life, there was this resolve to obey. But there's also a resolve in this passage to trust God's promises till death. Look with me at verse 25. We're introduced to a devout man named Simeon who was resolved to trust God's promises. He was assured by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death till he saw the Christ. And this word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, anointed one, which is this idea of a king, a ruler that would come and he trusted these promises, believing them inwardly. But also it is illustrated, his trust is illustrated in his waiting, his praising, and his prophesying. Within this point, we'll take some time to look at all three of these. His waiting, praising, and prophesying. The passage tells us that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does this mean? The word consolation is taken from the word console, which means to comfort. Simeon here is waiting for the promise of the prophet Isaiah, where Israel will be rescued and comforted. While we read these verses in light of the comfort of God already coming, those who are waiting for the promised Messiah, like Simeon, were in a place of turmoil, in a place of grief. Their land was run by tyrants. Life was far too expensive. And the life that they expected had yet to come. But they read. They read of God's promises that there would be a day where joy would dawn, where the Messiah would come, and that he would bring about hope with him. And this is what Simeon was waiting for. We see that he was resolved to trust God's promises in the fact that he believed Isaiah's prophecy. He believed that God would bring comfort in accordance with his word, so he waited. May we be a people who trust in God's word to wait well, trusting his promises 
Simeon not only trusted God's promise in his waiting, but also in his praising. By the Holy Spirit, Simeon is empowered to sing these praises of Jesus as he scoops him into his arms. And in these praises, he gives us clarity to the promised comfort that he was looking for. In verse 30, it tells us that the, the work of Jesus' comfort is one of salvation. The word salvation can be drowned out in its meaning because often we use it in church or as Christians and we don't think much of it. Salvation is deliverance. It's an act of rescue. But what is he delivering us from? What is Christ delivering us from? What is he saving us from? His deliverance is vast. It's a deliverance, yes, from sin and its consequences. It's a deliverance from the world system that exists, one of pride and arrogance. He delivers us from sadness, from fear, from loneliness. The list goes on and on of all the ways in which Christ delivers us and saves us. But not only is he saving us from something, He's also saving us to something. He's saving us to himself. That we would be comforted not by some other things, but comforted by God himself. That we would know him. And this salvation is not just for the Jews. It's for all people, the passage goes on to tell us. It's for the Jews and the Gentiles. The Je this word Gentile is one that's an all-encompassing term. It was any category of person, any ethnicity that was just not Jewish of descent. And this is for you and for me. Unlike maybe you are Jewish and this promise is still for you. For all who would believe, salvation is for you. Jesus is comfort. He is the one salvation. But he's also light. So what Simeon says, he's light to the Gentiles, but he's also a light to Israel. He's a light to the Gentiles by being a light of revelation. The function of light is helpful to note here. It is only by light that we can see. So Jesus gives light to the Gentiles, giving them the ability to see that they would see that life is not intended to be lived by scrounging around in the dark apart from God, but instead, life is meant to be lived in the light, striving with God. If we want to see life clearly, if we want to know what life is really about, we must look to Christ. But Simeon not only says that Jesus is a revelation to the Gentiles, but he's also the glory of Israel. Another fu function of light is helpful for us to know. Think of Jesus as the spotlight of Israel. A spotlight is used to bring about emphasis. And it is this glory that Simeon is speaking about. The spotlight of Israel is that Jesus the Messiah is born through their lineage. And this is a glory unto itself. We must see... What Simeon is talking about here is Jesus Christ. Simeon is trusting and waiting and praising 
because he sees the promise of God, Jesus Christ. Let us now look at his prophesying. Verse 33. Verse 33 tells us that Simeon gave Mary and Joseph this blessing. He blessed them. And they marveled. And though they had named the child Jesus and had been visited by angels, they were not fully aware of the magnitude of Jesus' life. And so he blesses them and he gives us particular prophecy to Mary. You may be wondering, why did he only give it to Mary? Many commentaries commentary speculate that it was to Mary specifically because by the time that this prophecy would play out, Joseph would likely be dead. Again, this is speculation, but it's helpful for us to know. He tells us more of what Jesus will do. And Tim Keller in his book, The Hidden Christmas, devotes a whole chapter to these verses. And largely, my thoughts here and my explanation is borrowed from Tim Keller. So let's look at these verses now. The prophecy tells us that Jesus is appointed for the falling and the rising of many. This is seeking to communicate that Jesus will bring about division in the nation. Some will be judged and be brought low, and some will be blessed and brought high as a result of their interactions with Jesus. That he will be a sign that is opposed. Jesus will be opposed. And Keller summarizes these, po- these two points and says that Jesus causes conflicts among people. This is seen throughout the pages of the New Testament. Then many will turn to Jesus and bless him, but there will be many who hate him, many who oppose him, and many who sought to kill him. This conflict among the people is something that Christians still today experience this conflict against us. Because we identify with the work and life of Christ, because of how we view morality, how we might have a stance on cursing, how we seek to use our money, our stance on sexuality, all of these things cause conflict not because of our intellectual stance, but because ultimately it relates back to Christ. And so we can be comforted that this comes to no surprise that Christ was opposed, and so will we be if we identify with him. Not only does Jesus cause conflicts among people, he also causes conflicts within people. Simeon goes on to say, a sword will pierce through your own soul and also that the thoughts of many may be revealed. Mary now is directly being spoken to, that she will be experiencing pain as a result of Jesus. And we know that she will. John's gospel tells us that she will witness Jesus' crucifixion. But also, she goes through the internal anguish 
of coming to believe in Christ as her Lord and Savior. Mark's gospel tells us of Mary's initial struggles with Jesus' message. Mark's gospel tells us that Mary and Jesus' brothers thought he was speaking madness. But then they come along and start to believe that Jesus truly is the way of salvation, that he truly is the Christ. This internal conflict and the expose of our hearts and our minds is something that all Christians experience. And maybe as you hear these words of who Jesus is and you've yet to believe in him, your heart is in conflict. Because if Jesus Christ is Lord, it comes at many costs. It comes as the, the scaffolding of your worldview would have to be torn down and a new one rebuilt. Does this talk of conflict, is it opposed to the idea of comfort that I spoke about earlier? No, it's not. It's often by pain that peace is achieved. When you think of cleansing a wound with either iodine or with some alcohol or something like that, there is a way in which when the wound is treated, there is initial pain so that it can be cleansed. Or if any of you have seen a therapist, when they give counsel, there's a painful instance where they bring about all the things that hurt you in the past. And it is through that work of experiencing that pain that you can be consoled, that you can be given tactics to know how to deal with the present. Before we can live freely, there is this sense of pain that each of us will go through. Before we can experience comfort, we experience pain. Before we can be healed, we are hurt. And the same is true for the Christian life. Before we can experience joy and forgiveness, we go through the pain of repentance where we have to accept our failures, our wrongdoing, all the things that we don't want to associate to ourselves. In asking for forgiveness, we have to do that. In asking for help, that we be a changed people, we have to do that. And so we have seen that Simeon was resolved to trust in God's promises till death. What we see is that God's promises came true. As you go on to read the rest of the New Testament, the things that Simeon says about Jesus come true. And would this be an indicator to us that we would trust God's promises, not just till death, but so that we may not die? That you would trust in Jesus Christ as the consolation of not just Israel, but also of the whole world. The one who brings about salvation to all people, if you trust in Christ, maybe if you've yet to trust in Christ, maybe again you are in this initial stage of internal conflict, this churning that's going upon in you. Maybe you're in a place of turmoil today. Would you turn to know his comfort, to know his forgiveness, and to know his salvation? 
If you are a Christian, you may have experienced this comfort of Christ in the past, and in some ways it feels like this distant memory, and you sit in your chair and you're like, Jim, I am still distressed. I'm yet to be comforted. Be reminded, see the promise of Christ, see his salvation, see what he has promised, that he is giving rescue, that he is giving comfort to all people one day when he comes again in his fullness. We will experience this perfectly. Let us conclude by looking at the last resolution, the resolve to pursue piety after loss. In verse 36, we are introduced to this old widow named Anna. Some commentators say that Anna could be somewhere as old as 103 years old or 105 years old. They gather this by deciphering the information given to us in these verses. They speculate that if she was married at age 12 or 14, then she had lived with her husband for seven years, then she would have been widowed for 84. And if you were keeping up with the math here, that would put her at age 103 to 105. If you want to be on the more conservative side and say that she was 84, which takes the information that came as just simply biographical instead of numerical, you can be there. But regardless of where you land on how old she is, what we do see is that she lived most of her life within the temple walls, that she lived most of her life as a widow. But despite her tragedies of being a young widow, and now as an older widow, she was resolved to pray and fast day and night. This act of fasting and praying was likely a reflection of her own waiting for the redemption of Israel. It could be motivated first by her mourning of her loss, but given the context of verse 38, I believe it should be understood as her abstinence and her hopeful denial, asking God to make things right. And so at the moment, or at the hour, when Jesus first comes to the temple, she stops from her praying, and she turns to proclaiming. We can imagine it, that she would have been on her face, crying out to God, and in that moment of when he comes to the temple, she looks up and sees her redemption, her redeemer, Her waiting has ceased, and the one who would redeem has entered the scene. She, not, she had no need to keep asking and hoping for it to come. Instead, now she can go about speaking of Jesus to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. And because she was a prophetess, we can assume that she was filled with the Spirit, that she knew that this was the Redeemer, and this Redeemer has come to save the world. The term redemption and consolation can be seen as synonyms. Both carry the idea of salvation, but redemption carries the idea of buying somebody back at a price. 
Anna, by the Holy Spirit, knew that Jesus would buy people back. Not by a sum of money, but by his own life. She might have not known at that very moment by what means this would happen, but she was aware of the results. She was aware that Jesus would gather a people to himself. Jesus redeems us by paying the price for our sins. What is, what is this price? It's the debt of record that stood against us. It's all sin, past, present, and future. But it's also the penalty of sin itself. It's death. Jesus died the death that you and I deserve because of our sin. And instead of allowing us to experience guilt, enslavement to sin, and finally God's wrath, he buys us back. He redeems us and washes us clean, giving us a clear conscience, the freedom to obey, and to be kept to live with God now and forever. Not knowing his wrath, but instead knowing God's mercy, knowing his grace, and knowing his glory. How can you know this redemption? It's not by resolving to do better. The resolutions of these characters are good and admirable, and I implore you to be a people of these resolutions. But it is not by this merit that we get salvation. The Bible tells us it's by grace alone, God's unmerited favor, by faith alone, the belief of in Christ alone, the only one who can bring about salvation. This is how we can be saved. And so would you trust in him today for the forgiveness of sins, believing in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord? Because if you don't, that guilt, that enslavement to sin and the wrath to come, is your present experience and also your future. So would you turn to Christ? Would you know his redemption and his salvation? If any of you know Andrew Huberman, he is the Stanford professor who's paving the way into optimized health. He talks much about supplements, how, you might, how much you must sleep, how many minutes of sunlight you need to get in your eyes a day, when you should drink your coffee so that you can make sure that it takes its peak benefits, all of these good things. But when asked if he does all of the stuff that he advocates for, he said, I try to. The reality is that even if we try to keep the law and do all the right things, we can't. The reality is, is that we will sin, and likely we already have. And so even if you obey like Mary, trust like Simeon, and pray like Anna, that is not what makes you acceptable before God. It is Christ. All of these people in this passage needed salvation. They needed redemption. They needed Christ. And so whether you are resolved or unresolved, Christ's salvation is for you. And what changed their lives 
was Jesus, and may he change ours too. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths in the word. We pray the fact that Jesus is the consolation and redemption of all people would be so clear to us as we enter this new year that we would praise you as a result of this and trust in you as we ought. Help us now to do so. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.